This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer, and welcome to this edition of Keep the Faith, my weekly podcast in which we explore contemporary issues through the prism of Jewish law and tradition. Today's topic, actually there are two, playing Russian roulette with our lives and also our responsibilities to those in need. Listen to these words. They're gonna have to. That's how Chris Christie, the former governor of New Jersey, responded to a question posed to him recently by CNN's Dana Bash. There are going to be deaths, he said, and there are going to be deaths no matter what. When asked whether Americans would accept the 3,000 deaths a day even the White House projects will occur if we reopen the economy at our current state of preparedness, Christie quickly answered with, they're gonna have to. There may be 3,000 deaths a day if we reopen the country, but we're going to have to say that's okay. We're supposed to be one nation under God, but unless the issue involved is a cause celeb for the evangelical Christian right, God seems to have no influence when it comes to setting policy. It's not the almighty, but the almighty buck that rules. We're seeing that now with the push to get the economy going, despite the risks to people's lives. What the president and many state governors are playing with now, what Christie was referring to without using the term, is something known by various names, among them the risk-benefit analysis or cost-benefit analysis. By whatever name, it's an unfortunately common computation that weighs the risk of harm a product may cause against whether making it safer will have a negative impact on its profitability. Two egregious cases come to mind. The first involved the Pinto, Ford Motor Company's first and arguably most popular subcompact. It debuted in 1971 and continued to be produced throughout the decade. There were at least 2 million Pintos on the road by the time the car's bubble began to burst, literally burst, into flames when lawsuits began to make the news in early 1974. As it turned out, the car should never have been put on the road before a very serious design flaw was corrected. Pre-production testing by Ford's engineers revealed that flaw, which involved the Pinto's fuel tank. The tank was located just five inches or so forward of the rear axle, right in front of the rear bumper. In a rear-end collision at only 25 or 30 miles per hour, the car's back end would be totally smashed in like an accordion. The impact would cause the gas tank to be pushed up onto the rear axle, where there were four sharp bolts just waiting to puncture it, which of course would cause the gas to pour out. All it would then take was a single spark, which a crash like that almost certainly would produce, and the car would explode. If the collision was above 30 miles per hour or so, the doors would jam and everyone in the car would be trapped in a blazing inferno, as in fact did happen too many times. As I said, Ford knew about the problem before the first car ever went on the assembly line. Ford could have held up production until this flaw was corrected, Ford, for example, could have used a much safer gas tank design, it already had a patent for one, or it could have easily redesigned the rear end so that the gas tank was behind the axle, not in front of it. 
The simplest and cheapest fix, the one Ford was finally forced to make in the mid-1970s, was to put a shield over the axle that would cause the tank to ramp over it. Ford did none of those things, however, before production began, because it was cheaper not to. For one thing, it was anxious to get the car on the road sooner rather than later, and to make the fix meant having to retool the assembly line, which was already set up for the Pinto before the test results were even in. More important, though, Ford decided that the benefit to its profitability outweighed the risk to its customers. Ford's number crunchers estimated that the payouts to settle death and injury claims would probably come to no more than just under $50 million. On the other hand, it would cost an estimated $137 million to make the Pinto safer. I'm not saying this. A 1973 internal Ford memo said it. The title of the memo was Fatalities Associated with Crash-Induced Fuel Leakage and Fires. The cost to make the fix, the Ford memo said, was almost three times what Ford would have to pay out to settle lawsuits and was thus not, in the memo's own words, cost effective. In other words, it was cheaper to let people die horrible deaths than to do anything to avoid those deaths. That's how the cost-benefit analysis works. The second egregious case, this one involving the Dalcon Shield IUD, was overseen by the late U.S. District Court Judge Miles W. Lord, dubbed the People's Judge by a fellow Minnesotan, the late Senator and Vice President Hubert H. Humphrey. The Dalcon Shield was produced in the early 1970s by the now defunct A.H. Robbins Company. They made Robitussin, among other products. Judge Lord once referred to the cost-benefit analysis as playing Russian roulette with people's lives. In the olden days, he said in a 1981 speech, if you killed somebody, if you produced something that would hurt somebody, you were stopped. If you poisoned someone's cattle, you were stopped. If you burned all of the surface off someone's lens, you were stopped. Not today, he said. Today we have the cost-benefit analysis where you weigh how much a human life is worth. Then he added this, funny... I always thought life was a sacred and priceless thing. When you put a price on the priceless, all is lost. We sort of play Russian roulette. At least 200,000 women in this country alone were injured or made sterile by the Dalcon Shield. Some died because of it. Which brings us to our current situation. Russian roulette is precisely what the Trump administration and various state governments are playing as they ignore the experts and seek to restart the nation's economy. As Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, warned senators on Tuesday to, quote, prematurely open up, unquote, the economy, the way it's being done could lead to, quote, suffering and death that could be avoided, unquote. He added this, I have been very clear in my message to try to the best extent possible to go by the federal guidelines, which have been very well thought out and very well delineated. President Trump was very clear two days later when he denounced Fauci's comments as unacceptable. Halakha doesn't operate in the public sphere, nor should it. If it did, however, it's highly doubtful that governments or corporations would be allowed to play Russian roulette, where lives are concerned. To be sure, Jewish law does allow for weighing risks, but it always comes down on the other side of the question. The principle of law involved is known as pikuach nefesh, threat to life. It's preeminent in Jewish law. 
As I've mentioned in a previous podcast, concern for life takes precedence over almost every Torah law, over 610 out of the 613 commandments found in the Torah. And it certainly takes precedence over decrees found in the oral law, starting with the Talmud. The three exceptions, if you recall, are if someone says your life will be forfeit unless you kill another person, or unless you commit a sexual crime, rape or incest, against another person, or unless you publicly lead a community into abandoning Judaism. In those three cases, you have to allow yourself to be killed. Those are the only exceptions, however. That life comes before law is made clear by the Torah itself. Leviticus 18.5 quotes God as saying, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my ordinances, which if a person does so, he or she shall live by them. This means, the Talmud explains, that people, quote, shall live by God's laws, not die by them, unquote. Simply put, if a person's life is in danger, even if only as a possibility, the law must take a back seat no matter who that person is. Life comes before law. The law itself insists on it. Shabbat, the Sabbath, must stand aside when life is in possible danger. Not just actual danger, possible danger. The kosher laws must stand aside when life is in possible danger. All but those three exceptions that I mentioned earlier must stand aside when life is in possible danger. Life comes before law in Judaism because the law itself says it must. So yes, Jewish law also has its own risk-benefit analysis. In its case, it requires weighing the risks to life and choosing life over law. It's the Almighty who rules, not the Almighty Buck. Someone the other day posed a question to me, however. How do we balance safety with the reality that so many people who are out of work are running out of money to buy some of the most basic life necessities, especially food and medicines? My answer was that danger to life must be our only consideration. At the same time, we need to make sure that everyone can get whatever necessities they need, especially food and medicine. In Jewish law, that's always been a communal responsibility, and it's even more so today. In other words, it's the responsibility of government at all levels and the responsibility of the nonprofit social service agencies, and it's our responsibility. We don't put their lives in danger. It's on us to see to it that they don't go without the basic necessities and especially foods and medicines. The Torah has much to say on the subject. First up, for example, is Leviticus chapter 19, verse 16. Do not stand idly by the blood of your neighbor. This has wide ramifications. In essence, it requires us to be proactive when someone else is in trouble of any kind, including if someone needs life's basic necessities. Then we have two other verses in Leviticus chapter 19. We're told in verse 18 to love your neighbor as yourself. And in verse 34, we're told to love the stranger as if he or she was yourself. It always amazes me how people, quote, love your neighbor but forget the love the stranger part, especially considering that the Torah reiterates that command in various ways over 50 times. But that's for another podcast. When it comes specifically to the needs of the poor, we have these verses in Deuteronomy 15. There shall be no needy among you, if only you heed the Lord your God and take care to keep all this instruction that I enjoin upon you this day. 
In other words, if you do what I'm about to tell you to do, and this is what he tells you to do, do not harden your heart and shut your hand against your needy kinsman. Rather, you must open your hand and lend him sufficient for whatever he needs. Give to him readily and have no regrets when you do so, for there will never cease to be needy ones in your land, which is why I command you, open your hand to the poor and needy kinsmen in your land. Beyond the Torah, there are the words of the prophets and later of the sages of the Talmud, all of whom emphasized our responsibility to those in need. The sages, in fact, warned that dire consequences can result from ignoring the hungry. They also made it clear that when the Torah tells us to walk in God's ways, then just as he is compassionate and merciful, it says, so too should you be compassionate and merciful. It follows that just as God clothes the naked and feeds the poor, so must we clothe the naked and feed the poor. Then we get to the various versions of the law codes, which all say the same thing. We even have a ruling from a 12th century rabbi that in situations in which food prices rise excessively, the items should be sold below cost to anyone who can't afford the higher prices. In our current situation, this is what it all boils down to. We need to keep people safe, which means not opening up the country before the proper systems and the properly trained personnel are in place for contact tracing, and not until we've gotten better at testing for the virus and for the antibodies. Meanwhile, it's the community's responsibility, meaning government at all levels, and the nonprofit social service agencies of all sorts and of every faith, and of us, to see to it that no one goes hungry or is denied any of life's basic necessities. Another name for the cost-benefit analysis is the benefit-to-risk ratio. The benefit to listening to Dr. Fauci and the other scientists and medical professionals far outweighs the risk we take listening to politicians who care less about people's lives than they do about safeguarding the profits of their wealthy donors. This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer. I hope you come back for my next podcast, and I'd like to hear what you think about this and my other Keep the Faith podcasts. Go to www.shamai.org. That's www.shamai.org. And email me, please. Shabbat Shalom. Stay healthy and stay safe.